Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, May the 23rd, 2018. This is episode 2445 of the Survival Podcast. And we're sticking kind of with the new schedule, at least for now. Or instead of doing a listener call show every Thursday, we do one every other Thursday. And a second of the week just jack show on every alternating Thursday to get more of these out. I do think this is the type of show that built the show uh, in the very beginning because it was pretty much five days a week back then when I was in the car. It was hard to do much of anything else. We did some listener feedback here and there, but we didn't do calls and we didn't do expert counsels and we didn't do interviews because it was just me in the car. And I do want to pull some of the roots of the show back into the show with this. And this is the type of show that I used to do once in a while. Kind of a myth-busting show. Today I'm calling today's show Myths and Misunderstood Topics. And we're going to do a lot of exposing of false dichotomies in this show. And I want to start out because of a comment made when I crowdsourced a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today on Facebook to make sure you understand where I'm coming from right from the beginning of this show so that I am not misunderstood and we are not going into this with mythology on our mind. So I am not coming at this from the standpoint of look how smart I am and how wrong you are. And I am not coming at this from the standpoint of let's yell and bitch about all the problems that we have. I'm trying to come at this from the standpoint of if you wish to be understood, seek first to understand. So that's that's where I'm coming at things today with this show. and But we are going to do some myth-busting today. And there's so many things that people are sure about that are just not the way they are sure they are. One of the things we're going to talk about today is America is not a democracy. It is a republic. This is a false dichotomy. And we'll explain how the two things can both be true and we'll talk about that and shred it, the dichotomy on it today. How about, I am not an atheist, I am an agnostic. There's a problem there. These words do not mean what most people think they mean, at least in regard to religion. Um, some may say, why bother with a show like this? Well, my view is one of the chief ways that the power elite keep us divided is to make sure we have these dichotomies, and generally false ones. And so to me, this is solutions-oriented because I want people to have better conversations with each other without polarizing. Because the way that you get a false dichotomy, and then you get people to take ridiculously extreme positions in that dichotomy, is first, you sow a little bit of disinformation about the average person on both sides of the opinion. Okay, then you rile up the extreme, if it's a left-right dichotomy, for instance, the extreme left and the extreme right, or extreme pro, extreme anti, doesn't matter what it is, you rile up the extreme, and then you take and present both extremes as the average and the normal. And on the way to all this, you know, you change the meaning of a few words, or when you realize one side's using one word to be one thing and one side's using it to mean another. You capitalize on that and you lather that up 
And then you sit back and you let the people act like the fools that you expect them to be. In the roads, of, words of one of Rome's former emperors, the moods of the crowd are easily changed like by with a hand wave, as though they were an ocean to be commanded. Some sort of paraphrase of that. But basically it was a, a Roman emperor who noted that I could change the feeling of the crowd simply with the wave of my hand and, and put them to whatever anger I wish to use so that I can get what I want. Sound familiar? And now, this is why we're doing this today. Imagine you're trying to talk to a person, and they speak Ukrainian, and the only language you speak is English. You actually don't have much of a problem, because at least you both know that you do not understand each other. So as you try to work through communications, both of you are really seeking to kind of understand what the other person's saying. You're not actually going to have a lot of arguments because you know that you don't know. But what if you are a native English speaker and you speak very good, not perfect, but very good Russian? Russian and Ukrainian are very similar languages, like Portuguese and Spanish, but they're not the same language. They're so similar that it is possible if you've never spoken to someone who speaks the other that you might confuse the person for just maybe being a little weird, right? Maybe not being the best communicator. So if you were a native English speaker that spoke Russian as a second language, and you met a Ukrainian, and he assumed you were Ukrainian, you assumed he was Russian, you could have some big misunderstandings with each other, because two words that sound very similar can mean two very, very different things. But, you would eventually probably figure out, hey, wait, this doesn't, something's wrong here. And until you did, though, there'd be those disagreements, and you would both be sure you were right, but you were both saying the same thing and meant something different. And only when you can actually define what the word means to the other person can you then have a conversation that's constructive. Now let's take this to another level, because what we're really doing today is a lot like a hypothetical time-traveling experiment. Let's say that you and a person from even 1920, 1930, let's say, ended up in a room, locked in a room together. And you're stuck in this room, and you don't know how either one of you got there. You don't have any conversation whatsoever about who you are. You just both realize, hey, we're stuck in this room. How the hell do we get out? It's a natural thing. You want to get out. You check. You don't have your phone on you. You say to this other person, Do you have a phone? Now, you both know what the word phone means. What does a phone mean to you? It means the little thing we carry around in our pocket all the time with a computer built into it that we can text with, that we can look up information with, that we can get a weather report with, that you can walk around with without a cord. And it lasts a whole day or more from one charge, from a thing you plug into a wall. You hook up, up to, let's say, if it's a, let's say you have an iPhone, you use a lightning cable. Do any of these things make sense to the guy from 1930, 1940 at all? What does he think when you say, do you have a phone? He thinks, are you retarded? Do you see a phone in here? What do you think, I just have a phone in my pocket? There's so many things that we talk about today that two sides or sides that are even, they even mean the same thing by the same words, but they misunderstand the total implications of these things. And therefore, we can't have a reasonable discussion. Let's start out with the Second Amendment. 
As many of you might imagine, I very much believe in the right of self-defense. I don't believe that anybody at any time should ever be told that they cannot be armed unless they've previously tried to kill somebody or something like that. Okay? That's, I mean, that's really... I think that it is an, an inalienable right. Absolutely agree. However, there's a lot of arguments against the way that we, on our side of this, defend the Second Amendment today and say what the founders meant by it. Many of those arguments are actually quite factually correct, but they're still wrong today for what the Second Amendment means today, legally, in the United States of America. One of those is that the founders meant that these weapons were to be kept so that they could be kept by the militia. And that's why the militia is mentioned in there. And, of course, our response is, it doesn't say that. It says that, that you know, it, it justifies this made with the militia, but it says the right of the people who keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's true. However, we try to present that as though all of the people that were involved with writing the Second Amendment were in agreement. The amendment itself is a compromise. There were people that did not want the amendment at all involved in the, the, the process of drafting and ratifying amendments. There were people that wanted the amendment to specifically say the people have the right to keep and bear arms in the militia. They wanted it to be written that clearly that it was only for the militia. And there were people that just wanted to say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The kind of clunky thing with a comma in the middle was a compromise. It was a compromise that said, hey, we are justifying this in that the people must have a militia to be able to ensure the, 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 the security of a free state, and therefore the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, one of the other things that the people that are opposed to this interpretation will say is, but that's not true because at the time it only applied to white male property owners. Not exactly. Not exactly. But even let's say that it did. Well, at one time, what about the right to free speech? Right? So over time, the Bill of Rights by our court system has been gone through a process called the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Now, not every amendment has been incorporated in the way I'm about to explain it. But the second has. So has the first. Okay? So what they'll say in defense of gun regulation is, but this state had very, uh, very heavy uh, gun restrictions. Uh, and it, they, they weren't pro prohibited from having these gun restrictions, let's say, in New Jersey or Virginia or whatever, on exactly who could have what, when, and where. Okay, that's because the Second Amendment, at the time that the Bill of Rights was ratified, did not apply to the states. So the states could do whatever they wanted with this. Now, the majority of states quickly, or had already incorporated into their own constitutions, some version of the right to keep and bear arms. And absolutely, the entire point of the Second Amendment was so that the federal government could not disarm the state militias. That is why it exists. That is why it exists. That does not mean it doesn't apply to the individual. It was not conditional upon. It was because of. 
This is really not open to opinion and interpretation. You, I, I could do a whole show on this. I could do a two hours quoting individuals that specifically were involved with the drafting and the negotiations that went on in the final version of it. And you would get blue in the face and, and, and fall asleep. Because it's not going to change your view. But when we look at the clear legal language of the Second Amendment, it wouldn't matter if the Second Amendment said to protect the nation from the flying spaghetti monster, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The right of the people means the people. Well, at the time it only meant this amount of people, yes, and through the incorporation of the Bill of Rights by the Supreme Court of the United States, and not just this amendment, but all amendments that were challenged this way, the people was expanded to mean everyone. Okay? The right of the people, the right of all of us, to keep and bear arms, to have and carry arms, shall not be infringed. That is the most clear legal contractual language that can be written. There is no court of law that would ever see it meaning anything other than this thing shall not happen. Now, again, so what the Second Amendment really would allow is Florida or Georgia or Pennsylvania or New Jersey to have outright gun bans. As written, it doesn't prohibit that. But... People, over time, using the court system, incorporated it and many of the other uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights to add that restriction to the states. Because the entire point of the Bill of Rights was to restrict the federal government and give the states autonomy. And over time, it was seen as a way to restrict the states as well. And if you oppose that, then, well, you should not be opposed to Florida having a, a law that prohibits free speech. Or Florida having a law that allows for illegal search and seizure. Right? Illegal search and seizure. We don't disagree that that's wrong. So that's the truth about the Second Amendment. And when you read a lot of these leftist arguments that say, but they had really strict gun regulations in New Jersey or whatever, they probably did. They probably did. Because at the time, the amendment didn't apply to the states. Let's move on. That took longer than I planned on. Um, another thing I saw recently that, oh my God, shake my head. Um, arguments about GMOs. So, I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm well below the average understanding of the audience right now, but just to tell you how this one got on the table. Somebody in a plant group on Facebook pasted, posted a picture of a tomato they cut in half. And it was a, you know, tomato had been around a little while, and some of the seeds inside the tomato had started to germinate. So she was convinced it was a GMO and they were trying to kill her. Uh, she was informed by several members of the group that there is no such thing right now as a GMO tomato. They don't exist. And she went on a rant about hybrids and GMOs being the same thing. Okay. And then, it like, completely, like, what is wrong with people's brains went on this tirade of a rant that GMO seeds screw up the ground so that nothing but GMO seeds can grow there. Rooted in this weird, twisted way, a tiny bit of fact. If you're if you're using a Roundup Ready uh, soy and you're drenching the ground with Roundup twice a season, 
then if you try to plant something else the next season into that ground that can't deal with Roundup, the residual Roundup will screw it up. But the, if you pr plant Roundup-ready soy, which is what she was saying, and then next year you plant something else, assuming you didn't spray with any herbicide, it, the, the existence of that, that prior seed won't prevent another seed from growing. It's ridiculous. But let's just, I mean, like when I thought I'd heard it all, guys, and that's kind of why I was doing today's show, like, man... The, the, the misunderstanding is the misconceptions people get when they go to these extremes is, man, you got to do something to kind of head it off. So let's just make this real simple. Genetically modified organisms, when it comes to seeds, means that somebody in a laboratory took foreign DNA and injected it in some way, generally with something called a transmugenic virus. So you actually have a virus that works at the DNA level that can take one piece of DNA and transmutate it into another strand of DNA. Now, I'm not even going to go into whether this is good or bad today because then we go into the world of opinion. I'm telling you this is a fact. There's other ways gene splicing is done. It's done with things like a gene gun and, and some other things like that in laboratories. But if it's a GMO, that means that people took genetic material from one organism that would never end up in the other organism in a natural way ever and injected it. So if I have a collie dog and she's going to have a puppy and I have her impregnated by a German shepherd, I have a shepherd collie puppy. But if I have the collie dog and let's say another collie dog impregnates her and in utero I take a gene from a cat and splice it into the embryo's genetics so that this dog now carries some genetic trait of a cat, whatever it may be. You know, Maybe it's to make the dog clean itself better, lick itself. I don't know, whatever. Now it's a GMO. The first one described, the dog was a shepherd and the other dog was a collie and they made it and had puppies that were shepherd and collies. That's a hybrid. That's all a hybrid is. We take two things that are essentially the same, two varieties of tomato, and we cross-pollinate them, and we get a new variety called a hybrid that carries traits of each. Or it could be even, you know, that has to be the same to a level. You can have a tiger mate with a lion and get a thing called a, a, a liger. And it has something called hybrid vigor, and it's really, really big. Okay? And that wouldn't generally happen in nature, but it can. We don't have to take the gene out of one and put it into the other. They can actually reproduce, in that case sexually, in some other cases asexual. Well, actually it would always be sexual reproduction. There has to be two, okay? Some way, shape, or form that one part of one fertilizes the other. That's all a hybrid is. Heirlooms, <laughs> with very few exceptions from some plants that were taken from the wild and just cultivated year after year after year, and that's just all they are. Let's say maybe a variety of something like an orach or something. Almost every vegetable that we call an heirloom started as a hybrid. That's how we got them. That's how we got them. Without the hybridization process, we wouldn't have most modern vegetables. That's why there's like 800 or something ridiculous varieties of eggplant. Every plant in the Brassia species we use as a vegetable comes from a single beginning of plants that, that makes broccoli, that makes cauliflower, that makes kale. They all come from one place. They're all common in, in their origins. 
and by crossing and selecting traits through hybridization, we have ended up with all of the varieties of broccoli and all of the varieties of kale and everything. It all comes from one place. Ducks grow into animals now, but every domestic breed of duck that people keep like as a homestead duck, other than muscovies, is really a mallard. But as different traits were seen, and then they were hybridized and backbred, we ended up with runner ducks and, and what have you. This is not genetic modification in the way the term GMO is using. And the entire concept was started by the pro-GMO crowd as a lie. Man has been genetically modifying plants for 10,000 years, and this is nothing new. The problem for them is the extreme anti-GMO bought into it and decided that it was all genetically modified and only their special heirloom seeds, which were by their own definition now genetically modified, were okay. Which gives to another myth. Genetically modified, I'm sorry, um, hybrid seeds will not reproduce true to type. And genetically modified seeds won't either. Well, first of all, the genetic modified thing is clearly not true. Because then Monsanto wouldn't be suing people for saving seed and replanting it. Because no one would do it because it wouldn't work. All the seed is sterile or it won't produce true to type or whatever. That's all nonsense. Now here's the truth. If I take and I cross, let's say, a jalapeno pepper and a sweet pepper, I'll get some sort of a hybrid. Assuming I like the results. If I save the seeds from the, the peppers that come, the, the hybrid peppers, and I plant them, they will not all produce a true-to-type offspring. But some of them will. And if I save seed only from those and replant that another season, not all of them will be true-to-type, but more of them will be. And in general, it takes seven generations of plants to take a new hybrid to a stable point through selection of the seed to where now it will become basically a new heirloom. And that's how we got everything. So this whole like anti-hybrid uh, seed thing is stupid. And the reason that's a solution is we have so many people in our communities that are afraid to use hybrid seeds. I can't save my seed. Well, you could if you really wanted to, but do you need, if you grow six pepper plants and you just bought a pack of 50 seeds, do you really need to save seed? Now, if you want to save seed for the purpose of developing your own strains and stuff, and you want to start with an heirloom to shortcut it, fine. But know why you're doing what you're doing. So now we're going to go to something totally different. People are of the opinion that we should prevent industries from disappearing. Oh, my God. And you can't see it anywhere more clearly than people that say, Don't use self-checkout because you're going to cost somebody their job. If you applied that thinking a hundred years ago, how many wonderful things would we not have? How many, how many industries are completely gone because of the smartphone we talked about at the beginning? You know, the death of retail. You know, we, I've been talking about that for years. First, it went from you're wrong, you're an idiot, and you don't know what you're talking about to oh my god, retail's dying, we have to save it. Okay, there'll always be some retail, but in general, as a thing, it's dying. It's not dying because evil corporations are making it die. 
It's dying because people would prefer not to have to go out into the world and go to a store and deal with employees that are largely incompetent to pick something out, to buy it, and to fight traffic coming home when they can get on a website, point, click, and buy, and have the thing show up the next day. And every single thing that companies figure out how to do that with efficiently, that retail segment will decay and either die or become very small. And that's going to happen. That's not bad. The belief that it's bad is in is uh, like it's like almost like a mutated, twisted form of conservatism. I want it all to stay the way that it is. Do you want it all to stay the way that it was when people died of common illnesses in America? Do you want it to stay the way that it was when they instituted the school lunch program? Do you know why they started school lunch programs? Because when we drafted people into a war, a ton of them were not fit for duty due to malnutrition. Now, I'm not saying that the school lunch program was a solution to that, but I'm saying that was a problem that we no longer have. And a lot of it has to do with the modern food system, which has its problems, but it's better at feeding people than what we had 70, 80 years ago. I know you don't think that it was because false nostalgia is a thing. Is it, was it better when the milkman had to bring your milk to your house with a horse, and if you ran out, you just didn't get any till next week? You know, was... <laughs> Was it better when we built great big bridges out of wood and they rotted and decayed and fell into the water instead of using steel? Every single industry that's ever been with us has only ever been with us for a time and will pass. The car is the thing that you own and you drive yourself will eventually go away. Whether the timelines I've laid out or Tony Seba's laid out are right or not, it will eventually happen. Which means an entire industry, truck driving, taxi cabs, bus drivers, an entire sector of employment will go away. It will be gone. It's not bad. It's called progress. Next up, um, do you know that there are people that really try to make the case that taxes in America are voluntary? Taxes are voluntary. And some of the arguments I've heard are just, I mean, they are retarded on their face. But let's start out with the first part of the misunderstanding here. There are people, I just found this out, there are people that don't even know that that argument's a thing. They have no idea that there are people who actually believe this. Now, if there's any possible way, let me say this, there is no possible way that a person who doesn't even know that some people think taxes are voluntary can have a conversation about taxation with someone who thinks they're voluntary and doesn't know that other person doesn't not only not agree with them, doesn't even know that that is a thing. So it is a thing. The reason that they say taxes are voluntary in America is we don't have, in general, tax collectors. And what I mean, I know you're like, well, those tax collectors, IRS, and no, no, let me explain again. It's important we understand the meaning of the words. In many places of the world, especially at the time of the founding of this country, tax collectors went and got the money from you. And a lot, of, you know, in fact, most people earned their money. Most businesses earned their money. Most tradesmen earned their money kind of daily. So if you think about tax collecting for a fisherman, 
the fishermen go out their boats. They know what time everybody comes into the dock. The tax collector would go down to the dock, evaluate the catch, and, and excise a tax that day on that day's catch. Now, that's clearly not voluntary. I am here to collect the money, and if you don't give it to me, this guy's going to stick you with a pointy thing called a spear. If you look back at Ido, Japan, the way that taxes were collected on rice wasn't a daily thing, but it was the same type of thing. We know your field is this big. This is how much rice you're supposed to have. If you don't, you best be able to explain yourself. And a village shogun would say, give, would take the portion of the rice from you. You didn't bring it to them. Okay? And they were going to show up. So when they say voluntary, what, what the original argument was is that someone doesn't come get the money from you. And that you report income and pay tax on it. The problem with that applying to the original argument was we didn't have an income tax. There wasn't an income tax. There were import taxes and tariffs. And there were some excise taxes and stuff like that. We didn't have an income tax until the Civil War. And it was very small and temporary. We didn't have a real income tax until 1913. So the traditionalist argument doesn't even apply to the income tax because it never existed. But there's no way you can make the case, if you, if you understand the meaning of the word voluntary, that taxes in the United States are voluntary. Let's take the income tax and put it away first. Right? I, I buy a car. I can't get it until I pay the sales tax on it. I go to the store and buy an item. I pay sales tax. If I own property, I pay property tax. If I rent property, I am charged property tax in my rent that my landlord makes on my behalf. That's why landlording is a good business to be in. People say, you'll might as well rent because you'll never own your house. You're going to have to pay property tax. No, you're going to pay my property tax when I rent to you. Okay? That, that's what's going on there. But that tax is not voluntary. Now, one of the arguments I heard made, and it just boggles my mind, <laughs> that, that the tax is voluntary uh, because creating a taxable event is voluntary. So what that means is if you don't make any money, you don't pay any tax. If you don't drive, you don't pay any tax on, on, on fuel. If you don't buy a house or rent a house, you don't pay any... Like, you choose to engage in the activities... They create the tax obligation. I'm sorry, that, that doesn't hunt, because I have a right to my own labor. I have a right to my own freedom of movement. I have a right to acquire one piece of property with another piece of property, be that dollar bills or silver or direct barter. And our government says that all exchanges are taxable, including item-for-item item exchanges or labor-for-item exchanges that exclude money. Now, I know you, you can get away with not paying tax on them, but it's not because it's voluntary. It's because they can't catch everybody doing that. They really don't have the time to go out and get Mrs. Mrs. Smith, who traded a haircut uh, to Mr. Thompson for some figs off a tree or something like that. They don't have time to do that. It doesn't mean it's voluntary. If they knew it, they will send her a letter and demand the money. And if two people exchange services, they're both supposed to pay income tax on it as though the, the, there's no offset. There's no way that it's voluntary. Voluntary means I only do it if I want to. 
I know that's hard to understand. That's a word we shouldn't, it shouldn't be in today's graphic. Today's graphic, uh, Enegio Montoya from, uh, was Princess Bride. And you know the famous words. You keep using those words. I do not think they mean what you think they mean. Voluntary should not be a word that we're having a problem with, but apparently it is. The reason taxes aren't voluntary is if you refuse to pay them, they use force to collect the money from you. I don't even know how that's an argument, but for some people it is. Um, the, one of the things that's going on around right now is this concept of free speech and things like Facebook and YouTube. And all of a sudden the left, because they're not the ones getting squeezed out, has discovered the concept that private businesses are not public services and therefore not subject to restrictions uh, as far as what they can do with free speech. That's true. And I'm going to get to why that may not apply to services like YouTube and Facebook as cleanly in just a second. But what we're going to start out with is do private businesses... Now, whether it's legal or not, I don't care. Do they have a right to re limit your speech using any of their platforms or things like that and or refuse you service? Now, legally, we get all kinds of things. I think from a, a basic moral standpoint, of course they do. Of course they do. What, what right? Do you have to force another person into something? So let me let me start with the free speech argument because this is the easiest one to explain. You say I have a right to free speech on Jack's blog comments, and I posted something there that he thought was racist, so he took it down, and that violates my free speech. Doesn't violate your free speech. My blog is my property. I own it. I paid for it. I put it there. I maintain it. I have built it over 11 years. I, I do see it as a community asset, and I'm glad it's there for you guys, and I don't think I could have done it without you, but it's still mine. And without me, it wouldn't be there. And if I wasn't here funding it, it would go away because the, the computer that it's on, somebody'd shut it off at some point because I wasn't paying for it anymore. It's mine. And if you think you should be able to put anything you want on my blog, well, then I should be able to come over to your house and spray if your name's Joe, spray paint... Joe is a dickhead on your, on your front door. And if you paint over your door, you're interfering with my free speech. How's it any different? Blog's my property. The door's your property. Neither of us have a right to use the other person's property as a platform or a venue for our thoughts. And as far as refusing service, if you tell me I can't refuse service to somebody for any reason, including completely racist or bigoted reasons... What you're saying is, I don't have a right to my property and my labor. And I understand how we got these laws. And I understand why they were put in place. And I understand what was wrong in America that was going on. I also understand that it's now 2019. And that if you take that tactic, please do. Because the first thing that's probably going to happen is your business is probably going to go under. But even if it doesn't, if there's a restaurant, and that restaurant says, We don't serve Hispanics, and we don't serve blacks. We only serve white people. Okay? And people, enough people go to that restaurant to keep it in business, even under those circumstances. My response is good. Fine. Because now I know who all the bigots are. And when I see Henry or Tom or Susan go into that restaurant, I'm done with them. 
And they can all be in their little world where they think that they're the best thing on, on the planet and not bother the majority of productive people who all get along. And, and all of the problems that, in, that necessitated laws to prevent that from happening began because the state put systems in place that made institutional racism possible in the first place. We won't get into that because that's where we start going into opinion. The concept that anybody that owns something has a right to who uses it, how they use it, or who they sell it to, that's an innate human right. That's not an opinion. If it was rightfully acquired, then it is right that they do with it as they see fit. Now here's why that may not apply to a Facebook or a YouTube or a Twitter. Do you get any government money? Are you subsidized with public dollars? Because I do not think it's okay if I go down to my local office and say I would like a wedding uh, license, please, because I'm going to play that game and I want to get married. And they look at me and say, well, who's your wife? And I say, this lady sitting next to me. And she happens to be a black lady. And the person there says... I don't believe that black people and white people should be able to get married, so I'm not going to give you a license. No, I'm sorry, you're paid for with money that's taken from the public to provide a public service. You have to provide it equally. However, if we get our marriage license, we don't really need a pastor at that point, by the way, but most people like to have a ceremony. And if I go down to a church that says we do marriages, and I say, hey, I would like you to marry us, please. And the guy is a racist and says, I don't do interracial marriages. I'm not going to go sue to make him marry me to my black fiance. I'm going to go find somebody that also wants to do it. And I see that as a religious institution. And what people will say about that is, but they get a tax-free exemption. They get a tax-free exemption because they're a non-profit organization, not because they're a church. I mean, that's, that's the reality. If you run a church as a for-profit entity, you do not get a tax exemption. That doesn't mean you can't be a really rich preacher. But that's a totally different issue. And if I go then down to a, a, a baker and say, I would like you to make a cake for me, and he says, well, what, you know, we have the little bride and groom. Yeah, I want that on there. And, and he shows me, no, see, my, my, my fiancé is, is black. I need a black lady, so it looks like her. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't bake you a cake. Okay, I'm not buying your cake. You, you, I have no right to demand that. I just don't. Now, if you're subsidized in some way by federal government, then we could, or the state government, either or, then we can talk about whether or not you have a right to refuse service. But this, that we do need to understand that even with things like Facebook, and what people say is, well, like 90% of people use Facebook, and it should be a public. We choose to use Facebook. There are lots of alternatives to Facebook. The only reason more people don't leave is more people haven't left. We have that freedom. Now, if they start making regulations that make it impossible to make a Facebook-like site without millions and millions of dollars to comply with regulations, which is what Facebook wants, by the way, well, then that's different, isn't it? Now I don't have an alternative. But just... Yes, a private entity, whether a citizen or company, should have the right to refuse service to anyone. No matter how 
screwed up. The reason is, no matter what it is, they should be able to do it because the free market would fix that shit so quickly. Next, this is the one that kind of kicked this whole thing off. I made a simple post last night. Didn't know that it would turn into the shitstorm that it did. But what I said is, why is it that all, with all being uppercase, all the people who say the United States is a republic, not a democracy, get angry when I say that I don't vote? Now really think about that. Because the only logical answer to that is, well, because we're actually a democracy. No, we're not. We're a republic. And then somebody's going to say some stupid shit. A, 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 a democracy is two sheep or two wolves and a sheep voting on dinner. And a republic is two wolves and a sheep with a gun discussing things or something like that, you know? The sheep has a rifle in a republic. No, that's not a thing. What a, let's start out with what is a republic? Let us define a republic. A republic is a state in which supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives and in which an elected or nominated president rather than a monarch. That is what a republic is. And as screwed up as it sounds, the Democratic Republic of North Korea is a republic. The Sudan in Africa is a republic. How many nations in the world where there's like 140 or 160 somewhere odd nations in the whole world? How many of them are republics? The answer is over 100 of them. Over 100 nations are republics. So, there are different ways by which officials are elected or nominated in those nations, but they're all republics. What is a democracy? A democracy is a system in which people vote to make decisions. Now, what people mean, though I don't think a lot of them even know what they mean, because the, the reason I'm even covering this is, It's fine for the person to make that statement when they know what the F they're talking about, but I'm telling you right now they don't. And here's how I know they don't. I had one person argue it with me this way. If the U.S. was actually a democracy, then you would be forced to vote. No, that's not how this works. Abstaining in a democracy is a thing. It always has been. Yes, I know some nations are retarded and have said you have to pay a fine if you don't vote or something. That's that we'll get to legality in a minute versus you know right and wrong versus legal. But that is not it's not not a democracy because nobody makes you vote. That's like saying taxes are voluntary because nobody shows up to collect them unless you don't pay them. I mean it's just it's it's ridiculous. So I know that person can't possibly even know what I'm about to say in in what they mean. When we say our government is a republic, not a democracy, we're saying it's not a direct democracy. But more so what we're saying is we have restrictions on democracy in our particular republic. Now, North Korea has much more severe restrictions on their, their democracy within their republic. But there are elections in North Korea. Yeah. They're... Not that I want to take part in, but they have elections, believe it or not. It's a republic. 
This nation is a democracy, but it is what we call a representative democracy. And when this is why this is important. When somebody says something about a threat to our democracy or whatever, and a person just blurts out the talking point, we never were a democracy, we're not a democracy, we're a republic, you're now engaging in an argument over bullshit instead of the actual issue. And then there is no way that you could possibly have a productive debate where either side learns a damn thing because now you've gone off in left field to argue about something that is not germane to the topic as it is being discussed anyway. Which, gee, why would the people in power want that? Don't you think they might lather that up a little bit, push the extreme positions, etc.? Now, I absolutely understand when somebody says, well, we should change the way we elect our president to preserve democracy or to, uh, to increase democracy, to make it more democratic. The person saying, hey, no, 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 that doesn't work. We don't need Los Angeles and New York and Chicago combined deciding every presidential election. I understand what you're saying. I concur and agree with your, you know, that you're circus and your monkeys, but I think you're right. I do. But that doesn't make it not a democracy. There is, there, what, what, what you're really saying is it's not a direct democracy. Now, we don't vote on everything. We elect officials, and then within the confines of the Constitution of either the nation or the state that they serve in, they do their duties. Right? I understand that, but how do they get elected? Because we vote. What do you call it when people vote? You call it a democratic process. It's just a restricted democratic process. But, it, you know, it's like saying that, I don't know, what if, what if we looked at it this way, that you have a, a, a particular place where housing sizes are limited. Housing sizes can be no larger than 1,200 square feet for a house, for whatever reason. Then say, well, we don't have houses because the house size is restricted. Or you can't build two-story houses and say, well, then we're not a housing development. Having a limit on something does not mean that it doesn't exist. The United States is a democracy and the United States is a republic. Specifically, the United States is a constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy. It is both. And guess what? Every other place is too. Now I will, I you know, when somebody can correct me and prove it, there are two. I think they call them canons, but it's like a province or a state in Switzerland that are direct democracies. Because in the past on the show, I've said there is no direct democracy in the world. And the truth is, there are two places in Switzerland that are direct democracies. Now the the, the nation itself is still a constitutional republic with a representative democracy. But in the case of those two provinces, their say-so in their federal government is direct. They vote on everything. Highly inefficient, but that's what they do. We are not that. No one says the United States is a democracy means that. Unless they're the extreme example used to polarize you. Let's move on to something totally non-political. When I asked for thoughts on this today, I said I'd like as much non-political as possible. By the way, there was so many. This show would be four or five hours long if I did them all. We may do some more of these in the future. Some of them weren't really fitting with what I was asking, but are still really interesting topics. I even got two great ones for expert council members out of this that I sent off to them. Okay, so non-political. Wood chips steal nitrogen from your soil. Oh, you better not put wood chips down. They steal nitrogen from your soil. 
This one I, I almost didn't do, but there was like so many people going, yeah, talk about that. Okay, fine. I'll talk about it. So you see the guy, he puts his garden in. He goes and gets a couple bags of wood chips or some bulk wood chips or something like that and lays them down. And then all of a sudden the wood chip police show up because the wood chip police are all over social media. Now your plants are going to be weak and die because it's going to steal nitrogen. Okay, let's just look at this with logic and reason. Because that's the other thing I'm trying to get out of today's show is the ability to analyze something critically with what you do know. So if I put three inches of wood chips down on the top of some soil, how much wood chip actually makes contact with the soil? The answer is a millimeter-ish. The, 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 the part of the bottom layer that touches the soil. Okay, and, and what part of the soil makes contact with the wood chips? Eh, a millimeter or so. There's only that thin layer where they actually make contact with each other because we're not talking about tilling them in. So we can get a nitrogen-carbon exchange with that. And when we get a nitrogen-carbon exchange and bonding, we call that compost. And so if there is some nitrogen in the soil that's able to bind up with the carbon in the wood chips, it will initiate a process you know, where we break down the wood chips. So the wood chips break down into soil, and the soil becomes available to the plants. So there's no way for those wood chips to rob anything unless we, let's say we laid down a layer a couple millimeters thick, We left them there for a week. We raked them back up and took them away. And then we laid down another couple millimeters. Then we raked them up and took them away. Now, if we did that, I guess you could probably figure out how to make your prophecy come true. But that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. We put the wood chips down. They break down. They might pull a little bit of nitrogen up when they do that, as they do that. And as they break down, they return it to the soil while improving the fertility of the soil. The whole thing is a myth. The whole thing is nonsense. People say the same thing about, like, culture. So if we bury wood, the wood is going to rob the nitrogen from us. Just, first of all, the wood's going to start breaking down. It's going to become a sponge, and the plants are going to go into the wood. I mean, good God. Now, can you, if you are on the edge of having sufficient nitrogen in, in your situation, if you add enough wood might you tip that to having a slight deficiency for your plants? Possibly. But, I mean, if you're gardening and you're not adding compost or organic fertilizers or something like that, you're doing it wrong. So it's just not an issue. It's just a dumb thing that no one should even worry about ever again. And the reason I went ahead and included it, in spite of how many times I've talked about it, there is not a time that I put up a video or something and show mulch that at least one person doesn't come and say it. Now, I know some of you are smart asses and you do it just like you do with the mosquitoes and the swale thing because you know you're pushing my buttons. You're trying to taunt me the way you taunt the Harris. Um, for those who don't know, that's a member of our council, Stephen Harris. Um, yeah, I, I, and I know who you are. I mean completely random idiots that you can tell. They're serious. They're, they're really concerned. Your plants are going to die, so it's not going to happen. Um, The next one is, and this is something that I think is really a big problem in America today, the belief that something is bad just because it's illegal, something is wrong because it's illegal, that legal equals right and illegal equals wrong. And if you think about this, this is not possible. This is not possible for this to be true. Both things can't be true. Because let's say you have a state like Colorado, 
that legalizes cannabis. The person who's adherent to that rule literally is saying, yesterday this person was wrong for using cannabis. Today this person's not wrong. If legal is right and illegal is wrong. Now, one of the things we have is people that believe that everything illegal is bad and some things that are legal are bad. This is a much more difficult conversation to have because that person can say, well, that's still wrong. You still shouldn't do it. Because that's the person when you say, hey, you know, how can we say this plant is illegal and it's okay to have a beer or drink a fifth of vodka and poison yourself? And the per that was the person that will say, I think alcohol should be illegal too. Well, now what they're, at least they're honest now. What they're saying is, I want to legislate my morality through the force of the state. I'm not going to agree with that, but at least we understand each other. But there are people that it literally is the case. It's okay as long as it's legal, and it's morally wrong to break the law. So are they morally wrong every time they do 61 into 55? Well, that's different. It's, well, no, it's not really, is it? And, and it, there's so much of this, and the, the problem with it is it gets us to accept things that we shouldn't accept. You know, we talked about you know, racist businessmen that wouldn't let a black person eat at the restaurant or something like that. The whole reason that was tenable to people is because it was legal. Because the state said, you can do this thing. And so you're saying, but Jack, you should remove those laws. Yeah, but the state also had a lot of other laws that reinforced institutionalized racism at the time. And so people, well, if the government thinks this. And it, it starts out with the true bigots and racists using it to justify their position. But the crowd is moved by the wave of a hand. And people that aren't directly, adversely affected by things, and it's legal, and it's always been this way, they just think this is okay. So, as long as we followed our own rules and how we bombed this other country, it's okay. We're the good guys. You know, this guy's in prison for something, even though there's no victim, but it was against the law. I mean, can you imagine what things would be like, how different it would be if to prosecute anybody for a crime that involved either taking their property, you know, fine, whatever, or putting them in a cage. If you were going to do either of those things to them, someone had to show up and be the victim. Someone had to show up and say, yes, my TV was taken out of my house And then the, ca the case would be made by the state that this is the person that took the TV. I think we can all agree there should be some, there should be some consequence to taking Tom's TV away. If Bill took away Tom's TV, Bill needs to be getting a TV back to Tom, and Bill may need some form of punishment so he learns not to take TVs from people like Tom ever again. Okay? That's, that's obvious. Okay, so Bill now was caught with enough little baggies of pot that the state can make the case that he intended to distribute. Who's going to show up and say, hey, I'm the victim here. 
Who can show that they were harmed by Bill? Well, no one. So how can we put Bill in a cage? Well, but see, it's illegal. So that makes it wrong? That makes it wrong? Wrong enough that we are going to take this man's liberty away? And you can replace, if you just particularly have a problem with drugs, you can replace it with a hundred different things that have no victim that people go to prison for and are fined for today. Just because something is illegal doesn't mean that it's bad. And I will use some extreme examples because they make the point. Not just to go to the extreme. But an example would be if you hid Jewish people from the Nazis in World War II, that was illegal. It wasn't wrong. If you were in the Nazi party and were ordered to, to murder people and you did it, it was legal, but it sure wasn't right. And that doesn't mean that all these people now are Nazis. It just illustrates the point that just because the law says it's okay doesn't make it okay. And people say, well, that was, that was, that was fascism. We won't go down that road today because this is a fascist economy, folks, if there ever was one. But you know, that can't happen here type of mentality. Oh, that doesn't apply to America. We don't do that. Man, look, the Nazis sent doctors to America prior to World War II. Because America was leading the way in the field of eugenics. The United States was the first country that ever had legal, forced sterilization of certain people who we felt, with their mental faculties, they shouldn't be reproducing. We did that way before the Nazis did. Way before Hitler came to power. We were congratulated by the German government for having the courage to do it. So when somebody takes an extreme position and you you want to want to push it away, or uses an extreme, I shouldn't say extreme, I don't like extreme positions. It uses an extreme example to illustrate a point, and you want to just back of hand it because well that's not here. We did plenty of things here, and there's plenty of places in the world today that have turned into absolute third world shitholes. That people thought the same thing. Well, that can never happen here, and every time it always happens. Everybody thinks well not here. I'm sure the Romans thought that. I'm sure the Greeks thought that. I'm talking about ancient Greeks. All right. you, you, you can't make the case that something's wrong just because some men somewhere put together a piece of paper that said it's prohibited. You have to make the case on actually evaluating the thing for whatever it is and does it harm anyone who wishes to not be harmed? And how does that happen? And do they have any way to avoid harm? Next, um... I think there's a big misconception. One person pointed this out, and this is a little different than everything else, but it's a good thing to think about right now and understand. The real reason there's not as many electric cars on the road as there could be right now. People think the technology is not there yet as far as building them and their quality and affordability and things like that. It's not the case. It's not the case at all. What's holding back the electric car right now is the infrastructure, so charging stations, etc., and the dealerships being equipped with the technology and their own internal infrastructure to be able to maintain and work on and have the knowledge necessary to take care of these vehicles. Once the infrastructure catches up, all the stuff we've been talking about with electric vehicles is going to happen like that. That's, that's actually how it's going to happen. 
as, as, as you get these confluence of technology. So it's the infrastructure. It's also on some levels the computers and things like that and the technologies and the cost of computing continues to go up in speed and down in price. As that happens, electric cars are going to take over the world. Whether you even believe on the autonomous vehicle side of it or not, the electric vehicle thing is a foregone conclusion. And that's really what's holding it back. There's not actually a lot more to say on that. It's just something that is going to drastically change your life. And your entire belief in why it hasn't happened yet is incorrect. And that, that may lead you to falsely assume that it's that's, 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 that's 50 years. It's, it's not 50 years. It's more like 5 to 10. Um, another one, and this is one that I thought was really time to bring back and talk about again. Organic food is not any more nutritious than conventional food. That's an argument made against organic food. The problem with that argument is it's absolutely true and irrelevant to the reason for using organic food or growing food organically in the first place. What that person means is if we evaluate a sweet pepper, grown organically, and a sweet pepper grown conventionally, and say how much vitamin A are in these peppers, assuming they're the same variety, grown in about the same climate, picked at about the same age, same, you know, all of it being as same as possible, other than this one used pesticide and NPK fertilizer, and this one used compost and you know garlic tea, pepper tea spray um, to keep insects off of it. They are going to be nutritionally almost identical. They're going to have about the same amount of calories. You know, depending on uh, pepper is not a good example, but uh, some vegetables have a lot more carbohydrate. So if it's a potato, the two potatoes will have about the same amount of carbohydrate. The same, even in general, unless it's grown in really well-managed soils, the same nutrient density. So the argument's true, but the argument is an attempt to sidestep the issue. People don't buy organic vegetables or organic meat or organic anything for what's in it. They buy it for what's not in it. So if, if I am consuming organic wheat in the form of a bread, I know that there wasn't pesticide or herbicide sprayed on that wheat. I'm buying it because it lacks pesticide. It lacks herbicide. It lacks toxins. I am not buying it because it has more iron in it. That was never that was never the goal of organic food. And by making a fallacious argument, people came to the conclusion that it was. And then people want to argue the other side and say, yes, it is more nutritious. With no idea what they're saying. None. Here's two more quick ones to wrap things up today. Number one, there is no such thing is the boiling frog analogy being real. You know, the, 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 the way that this is explained is the way that you know, society is taken, liberty is taken from society. It's like a boiling frog. You take the frog, you put him in a pot, and you slowly, very slowly increase the temperature until the frog dies in the boiling water. But it never tries to get out because it didn't feel the temperature change. It's an interesting analogy. It sort of does apply to the way things are done in the world, but that's not how frogs work. 
reptiles and amphibians uh, do something called thermoregulation. And it's exactly what it sounds like. And since they're cold-blooded and they, they're, they're not like you, you can be relatively comfortable at like 60 degrees and you can be relatively comfortable at like 80 degrees because your body maintains its own temperature. Well, if you start turning the temperature down on a reptile, it, it starts to get cold and it can't warm itself up, so it will seek heat. But if things get too hot, it will go away. And anybody that's ever kept reptiles and amphibians as, as pets knows that when you set up a terrarium, the first thing you do is set up a thermal gradient. In other words, you put some sort of heater on one side of the, 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 the cage and you put nothing on the other so that the animal can pick and choose where it wants to be based on its comfort. Again, thermal regulation. So the concept that you would put a frog in water and start increasing the temperature and it would not become uncomfortable just is biologically untrue. It's just not. So there's that one. And then the last one is rabbit starvation. Rabbit starvation is the most ludicrous thing that's also true that, I, that I've ever heard. So, and you see this too, the rabbit starvation police on social media. It's amazing. They're everywhere. Everything has a police force on social media. So some guy, you know, puts up his videos, and uh, he, he's, he's homesteading. He's like Homesteader Pete. And Homesteader Pete is really proud of his new rabbit hutches. And Homesteader Pete is, is really happy because his, his does have started pulling fur, and one of his does has given birth. And he tells everybody how, you know, every week we're going to have at least one rabbit meal from now on. It's going to be a big part of our meat. And the rabbit starvation police show up and go, if you eat too much rabbit, you're going to starve. And you, you just want to find that person and, and, and force feed them rabbit until they starve or they throw up one or the other, whichever one comes first. So how is rabbit starvation both false and true at the same time? Okay, here we go. Rabbit starvation was about people that were living on almost nothing but rabbit in the mountains through a winter and getting no fat in their diet. Rabbit starvation is not about protein, and it's not about rabbits. It's about a lack of fat in your diet, which can and will kill you. You can live on a diet of almost nothing but fat, and you will survive. You can, If you get a little bit of protein, you ain't good, but you'll survive. You can live on a small amount of protein. And 100% fat. And you can, if you, as long as there's other conditions are right, you can thrive. You can do without carbohydrate. You can't do 100% without protein. And you absolutely cannot go zero fat. It will kill you. It will abs and this is a, this is a medical fact. So these people that were starving, eating starving rabbits, which had shed almost every bit of their fat, were suffering from a, a lack of calories and a lack of fat in their diet. They didn't starve because they ate too much rabbit. They starved because they only ate rabbit. You could eat rabbit every day for the rest of your life as your protein source. And as long as you, in otherwise, have a reasonable diet, nothing will happen to you other than you will eventually get bored of rabbit. That is it. It is not a thing. And I hope today's show did what I what I hoped it would do. I hope there's at least one thing that you were absolutely sure of that now you at least question. That's all I ask. 
That's all I ask out of a show like this. Not that I even changed your mind, that you at least question it now. GMOs and hybrids, maybe that was it for you. We're not a democracy. Of course we're a democracy. We have to be a limited democracy. But being a limited thing does, make, does not make you not that thing. If we were not a democracy, people wouldn't vote. And you wouldn't get mad when I say we didn't vote. Because my vote wouldn't matter, which doesn't. But whatever. We're not going to my opinions today. We're trying to stick to facts. No, your wood chips are not going to kill your plants. Something is not okay just because it's legal. And it's not bad just because it's illegal. The Second Amendment, absolutely, as it was written, did not prevent the state of New York or the state of New Jersey from infringing on the right of people to keep and bear arms. It didn't apply to them, but it does now. Like many other amendments in the Bill of Rights, it was incorporated to restrict the states in addition to the federal government. This is the world we live in. And there was one I missed, and I don't know how I missed writing this down. But we'll talk about it. We'll wrap up with this. This is actually one of the most important ones. Glad I realized it. Agnostic. Atheist. Theist. Deist. And Gnostic. The meaning of those words. And there's one in particular that I think people really use wrong, and another one people don't even think about. And that's, the one people don't even think about is Gnostic. What is to be Gnostic? Once you understand Gnostic, then the rest of this makes sense. You'll stop using the word agnostic and probably. Gnostic is to know. I am Gnostic of the fact that in front of me right now is a 55-gallon fish tank with a great big placo on the top feeding on the bottom of the duckweed. I can see it. I have direct knowledge that this fish tank exists. We want to get into the weird, spooky world of like things like modern physics with biocentrism and stuff. We can make questions about that, but you get what I mean. I know that tanks are. I know there's a microphone, and I will show you that I have a microphone. Hear that? That's me tapping on the microphone. You now have knowledge that there's a microphone. I definitely know. I can see it. If you really needed proof, you could come here and I could show you the microphone so that you could be Gnostic of the microphone. Okay? So what is agnostic? It means to not know. To lack knowledge. I don't know exactly where my German Shepherd is right now and what he's doing. I'm in my office, the door is closed. I have a pretty good idea of where he is and what he's doing. I'm pretty sure he's laying down. He's probably in the dining room. But I could be wrong. He might have went into my bedroom and laid on the carpet because he felt like it. I don't know. I am agnostic as to the exact location of Max the German Shepherd. But I'm gnostic to the fact that right now he is here in my home somewhere. I am completely Gnostic to where Charlie the Pitbull is because he's laying by my feet and I can see him. Gnostic, agnostic. Now, you get into where people use this word improperly. Atheist, theist, deist. Let's start out with what is an atheist. An atheist is a person who lacks a belief in a god or gods. I do not believe in a god or gods Because you haven't given me any compelling evidence to prove they exist. Okay? 
That's an atheist. A theist, I believe in a God that is defined by this theology, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, etc. Or in some cases, I believe in a group of gods defined by this theology because this theology says so and I choose to believe it. Atheist, theist. Deist, I believe there is some form of something that we would call a God because by logic and reason and the inability of science to show me conclusively that life can truly arise from nothing leads me to make this decision of belief. These are all three positions of belief. And there's really nothing left. There's, there's something, there's this thing, there's nothing. Right? That's it. Those are all statements of belief. So the way agnostic gets used wrong, well, what do you believe about God? Well, I'm an agnostic. That doesn't answer the question. So what people think agnostic is, is atheist light. I don't necessarily believe in God, but I'm open to being wrong. That actually is an agnostic position. It's an agnostic atheist. It's not atheist or agnostic. It's an agnostic atheist. I'm an agnostic deist. I absolutely believe in a higher power. I don't believe that humanity will be able to explain what that higher power is at this point of our existence. I don't know if we'll be able. I am agnostic to the fact of whether or not we will be able, even if I'm right, to prove it after we die. Or to know it after we die. I don't know what happens after we die. We could move on to some other level. We could get reincarnated. Our energy could return to a source. I don't know. And I know that I don't know. But... When it comes to does that God exist or not, does something, is there some creative force? Is there some first cause? Is there some greater intelligence? I believe it, but I don't know it. So therefore, I am an agnostic deist. Most theists, Christians, Jews, Muslims, if they will let themselves off the programming of a profession of belief becoming a profession of knowledge, are also agnostic. You don't know that your version of God or any God is correct. You believe it. I know you believe it in all your heart. But unless you've seen God, touched God, or you can put God in a place and show me God, you don't know. You can convince yourself that you know, but you don't know. If you claim you know, I know that this religion is factual. This book is the undisputed word of God himself. He exists. This is exactly how it is. You're claiming, at least, to be Gnostic. If you can admit, I believe this thing, but I don't know this thing, then what you're saying is, I'm an agnostic, because I don't know, but I really, really, really believe this. And let me clue you in on the important thing here. If you want to claim to be a person of faith about anything, it is important that you be agnostic to that thing or no faith is required. I require no faith in the fact that that fish tank is right there. I require limited faith that my claim to be Gnostic, that my dog is in the house somewhere, my German Shepherd Max is in the house somewhere, I, 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 I require a little bit of admission to agnostic. My wife left to go get my grandson. It is theoretically possible that Max is outside of the house 
based on conversations prior to that happening, it is not very probable. But there's even a tiny, but I know Max exists. Right? Whether he's in the house, whether he's sleeping next to the bed, whether he's under the kitchen table, I know that dog's somewhere here, even though I can't see him. That's how this works. And I think it helps people clarify things because I've talked to, to a lot of people who are atheists that insist they're, they're, they're not an agnostic. And I've talked to a lot of people that are agnostic that insist they are an atheist, and both of them are wrong. I have a very good friend. She says, well, I'm agnostic. I'm over the possibility of God, but I don't believe in God, but I'm not an atheist. You just define being an agnostic atheist as yourself. Why is that important? So if you want to have a conversation about what might be the greatest human topic there can be, how do we get here? Why, do we, why are we here? What happens after we die? Where did we come from? That you can at least speak from a place of understanding each other. And that is what I meant when I said today's show was meant to be taken this way. If you wish to be understood, seek first to understand. To understand the person who is an atheist and an agnostic. To understand the person who is a theist and also an agnostic. That both of you now admit neither of us know. Then you understand that both of you are speaking from your system of belief. And it's not important that you agree, only that you understand each other. And how much further would we get as a society if we could take all of these issues and discuss them that way? That was my hope for today. I hope it worked out. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys you can always support the show and the work that we do. By doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Today's item of the day that was reviewed is the Marine Metal Aerator Bubble Box. This thing is awesome. Um, it's cheap. I mean, that's the first thing. Uh, this thing is a whopping $8.96 with free shipping. It lasts a ridiculously long time on 2D cells. How long? 40 hours. What is it? It's an aerator. It's a little air pump with a tube and an air stone, and you stick it in water, and it makes bubbles. What does that do? It keeps fish from dying. That's the number one thing um, that you do with them, and that's one thing you can do with this. And for fishermen, for keeping bait alive, it's great. But what about people like me that have fish tanks? It's a great backup thing to extend how long you can go with a power outage. You can take this, and if you had two of these and a 12-pack of D-cell batteries, you can go five full days running two pumps, 16 bucks worth of pumps. And that could keep two fish tanks from losing thousands or hundreds of dollars worth of fish in them. When I use it for fishing, one of the things I love about this thing is it's so lightweight and small. So I put one in my suitcase when I go to Florida. Then when I get to Florida, I go buy one of those styrofoam buckets for like three or four bucks. And whenever I go to the bait shop and get shrimp, I'm all ready to go. I keep my shrimp live long enough to do my shore fishing. So it's a very, very flexible little product, and it's cheap, and it works. What about you guys that make mead and beer, though, that want to go high gravity? One of the things you can do to push alcohol content up to 16 to 20% is oxygen. I know you're like, Jack, there's not supposed to be oxygen in my wine once I make it. It's, it's bad. Well, that, it is, but not prior to fermentation. So what you can do is when you make up your wort or your, your must or what have you, 
you drop this thing down in there and and you just oxygenate the hell out of it, then you pitch your yeast. You get a much better turnover of that yeast and a much more rapid uh, fermentation and a lot more uh, energy to fully attenuate the ferment and to go to higher levels. A lot of cool stuff that you can do with it anyway, and it's an $8 little product. Remember, everything on tspaz.com, I own it, I spent my money on it, or I would not ask you to do the same thing. And you go to tspaz.com and you start shopping there, and no matter what you buy, even if it's something I haven't reviewed, you still help support us and the work that we do. And if you were going to shop anyway, why not start at tspaz and support the show that you listen to five days a week, or even one day a week, if you listen to one particular show a week. All right. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Warren Zevin called Looking for the Next Best Thing. Uh, I've been off John Adams' script this week. What happened was Monday's show had a song for Mother's Day, and I didn't realize that. And so we had a week off for the workshop, and that meant that that show got pushed back out. And therefore, that, that show that was supposed to come on Mother's Day came after Mother's Day. So I was like, I don't want to play a Mother's Day song after Mother's Day. Doesn't make sense. So I just didn't use that song Monday. And then I've been on this thing of like wanting to decide what songs go on my show this week. So I'll probably take all of John Adams' other suggestions and move them to next week and, and play them then. And I'll just have to come up with something for Monday. But I wanted to keep that going today. And I've been on a Warren Zevon kick lately. Um, I don't have a lot of great things to say about David Letterman, but I do owe David Letterman for being the reason that I am a fan of Warren Zevon. I first uh, came across Warren on the David Letterman show back in the 80s. I became one of the guys I listened to, just loved his music. I've played some of this stuff for you guys before. This song is one of the songs that, like, if you're not a fan, you probably never heard it, unless I played it before and don't remember playing it before on the show. If, you, if you're not a person that owns Warren Zevon's music, you know, I shouldn't say that because today with things like Pandora and all, um, I think people are, I think it's good, we're exposed to more music than ever before. Then we say something about don't be upset when entire industries disappear. Yeah. Anyway, so um, this song is about the fact that you can't always get the best. You can't always expect that whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, you will achieve. Or whatever you're trying to acquire, that you will acquire. That it's worth shooting for. But... In shooting for it, you'll probably get something better than you would have otherwise. See, this song sounds very pessimistic if you listen to it the wrong way. Ah, shit sucks, so I gotta settle. That's one way to take this song. The other way to take the song, and the line is, I appreciate the best, but I'm settling for less. Right? I'm looking for the next best thing. If I pursue the very best in myself, I might fall short. But I'll be good. If I seek the highest achievement, I may fall short, but I'll achieve something great. If I go out and try to find the best quality in a product or an item, I may not find the best, but what I find will be good. It will be more than adequate. That's how I choose to listen to this song. And that's something that I wanted to drive home at the end of today's show. And getting out of dichotomic thinking. Diocomotic? I think thinking in the form of a dichotomy. I want to get you out of that thought process. Because it is by realizing that you have the choice as to what you think. 
rather than picking A or B. You have a right to discern an option C for yourself that you get out of that system that's been set up for you. Remember what I always say. You either design your life or you live the one somebody else has already designed for you. And the people that designed your life for you, they do not have your best interest in mind. So even if you don't get everything you want, go out and try to help other people get as much of what they want as they can in a helpful way. Be a doer and a helper, and you'll get most of what you want. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Discourage